No other name, hey? Absolutely. Thank you, guys. Thank you for leading us in worship and taking us and uh, so clearly bringing us to the name of Jesus. Uh, it's, it's, it's just wonderful to worship with you, and it's good to be here. It's really great to be here, and I think we're going to have a fantastic couple of days um, in worship, and, and the things that I'd love to share with you, I, I think they, they are, well, firstly, I believe it's the gospel, and, and, and that's important, um, but I believe it's really important for us to think about, and some things that are really important for us to ponder about as we think about what it means to follow Jesus, is that we think about what it means to... Um, to live our lives defined by um, this name, this name and, and none other. As we think about um, the, the notion of discipleship and what it means to follow Jesus, one of the glorious things, and we forget this actually, it's so plainly obvious that we forget it, is that we have this, this wonderful book called the Bible. And, and in that Bible, we have these gospel stories, these foretellings of Jesus, and in it, we see Jesus making disciples. We see Jesus living His unique life, and we see Him with the disciples, which means we're seeing Jesus all the time discipling people. And so, if we want to think about what does it mean to be a disciple, or what does it mean to be a person who's in, say, leadership in ministry and discipling people, if it whatever it means for every single Christian to fulfill that commission that Jesus gave us to go and make disciples, what he's basically doing is, do what I've, you've seen me do for the last few years, go, go and do that. And that's actually such an obvious uh, kind of uh, point that I actually forget it myself. And so I spend out, I'll think, and I'll read books about discipleship, and I'll be pondering about young adult culture, and I'll be doing those things, and, and forget to go back to these Gospels and actually look at the life of Jesus and look at what He did. Well, how did He treat His disciples? What kinds of experiences did He invite them into? How did He challenge them? And, and how did He love them and, and, and bring them into a joyous place? I think that's a really interesting insight. If you want to actually change and radicalize your life as a disciple of Jesus, be, become obsessed with reading the Gospels. Read them over and over and over and over again, and you'll actually start to get a little bit of a hint of, of, of what this Jesus, this no other name, uh, is like, and why, in a sense, He is the most uh, profoundly unique person who has ever lived, and why, really, the universe swings on His life, death, and, and His resurrection, why it matters. So what I actually want to do over these next couple of days is do that with you. Um, I, I want to take you to a couple of those stories, um, and in tonight in particular, I want to take you to a very strange story, uh, a very confronting, a very bizarre story. It, it doesn't really feel like it's a story of discipleship. It kind of just feels like it's a story of Jesus doing something a bit mad and miraculous. But I think He's doing it in front of His disciples to show them something really quite uh, unique and, and interesting. If you've got a Bible, then you may want to open it out to uh, the Gospel of uh, Mark. Uh, if you don't, as you know, uh, well, I'm just going to read it to you anyway. So don't feel bad if you didn't bring your Bible. That's all right. That's, you know, I mean, none of the disciples bought their Bibles to hang out with Jesus, did they? So that's not a thing. Don't worry about it. This is Mark, the, right at the end of, of the Gospel uh, of Mark chapter 4. So right at, Mark, we know, is actually the first Gospel that was ever written. And um, Mark was a guy who travelled around with Peter. 
So Peter, you know, Peter, the, the, the disciple, he goes around preaching, uh, apparently not so much, you know, very good on the laptop. So we know that Mark followed him around and basically wrote down what he was saying about the time that he followed with Jesus. So it's the earliest gospel we have, and this is really early on. So this is right at the start of them following Jesus. And, and it says, on that day, this is verse 35, it says, on that day, when evening had come, Jesus turned to his disciples and he said, let's go over to the other side, the dark side. <laughs> Let us go over to the other side. You see, they're walking along the sea. And these guys are fishermen, so they go out in boats a little bit. But Jesus makes this, it's quite a strange comment, and I'll explain why it's strange. He says, let us go over uh, to the other side. It says, and leaving the crowd behind, they took him with them in the boat. Um, just as, the, as he was, and the boats uh, were with him, and a great windstorm arose, and the waves, you know, threw the boat around, and so the boat was already being swamped with water. But he was in the stern; he's sound asleep. Jesus says, "Come onto the boat," and then Jesus falls asleep. And you know how this? And I'm going to jump ahead because the next story is the one I want to get to. But you know, Jesus stands up in the midst of the storm and says, "Peace, be still," and the, and the winds calm down. And then they cruise over to the other side of the sea. And it says, when they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes, and he stepped out of the boat, and immediately a man came out of the tombs with an unclean spirit and met him. This man lived amongst the tombs, and no one could restrain him anymore, even with a chain, for he'd often been restrained with shackles and chains, but the chains wrenched apart and the shackles broke in pieces and no one had the strength to subdue him. And night and day amongst the tombs and the mountains where he was always howling and bruising himself with stones. And then he saw Jesus from a distance. It's always a good day, day when you see Jesus from a distance. And he ran and he bowed down before him and he shouted at the top of his voice, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I abjure you by God, do not torment me. For he had said to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And then Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send him out of the country. Is this the weirdest story you've ever heard or what? I've read this since I was a kid, and it still strikes me every time, going, did this happen? This is too weird to have made up. It must have happened. Now, there on a hillside, a great herd of swine were feeding, and the unclean spirit begged him, send us into the swine. Let us go into them. And so he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out, and they entered into the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned. And then the swine herds, the pig farmers, ran off and told everyone in the city and in the country. And then people came to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and they saw the demoniac man sitting there. He's obviously pretty well known as the crazy guy. Sitting there clothed and in his right mind. The very man who had had the legion. And then they were afraid. It's like, wow, crazy man's not crazy. That's scary. And those who had seen what had happened to the demoniac and to the swine reported it. And then they began to beg Jesus to leave their neighborhood. And as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed by the demons begged him and said to him, can I go with you? But Jesus refused and said to him, no, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you 
and the mercy he has shown on you. And he went away, and he began to proclaim to the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and, and everyone was amazed. Fair enough. This is a really weird story in the Gospels, and it happens really early on. Jesus has gone around and he's gathered his disciples together and he's brought them and they're walking along and yeah, there's a sense by which the disciples are just starting to believe that Jesus might be the Messiah. In fact, we haven't quite reached that point yet in a sense. It's a little bit later on where we sort of see them, you know, Peter says, yes, you're the Christ. So they kind of, they've been grown up all their life, uh, brought up knowing that one day a Messiah would come who would save them. And Jesus turns up and, and they follow him and they're just starting to understand, well, this guy may be the Messiah. He may be our Jewish saviour. He may be the one, like Moses, that will give us our land back again, will drive the Romans out and restore us as a people. He may be our Messiah. They're starting to buy. I mean, he's doing miraculous deeds and things, and you see that. Wow, this is probably him. He's our man, our man, the Jews. And then Jesus says something that they would never have expected. He said, hey, let's go over to the other side of the lake. Now, why is this unexpected? It's unexpected because the other side of the lake is Gentile territory. Now, if you're going to get something of the dynamic in the Gospels, you've got to understand a little bit of this kind of interracial issue. The Jews understand themselves as being the chosen people of God. They are the chosen people of God. The Old Testament makes that clear, pounds it again and again. God has chosen you, the Jews, as the people of God to, to take the Gospel to the world. And so they understand themselves as being a holy, a separate, special people. They have rituals and they have all sorts of things that you find in the Old Testament there that separate them from people that are sinful and unclean. And they understand Gentiles as being those unclean people. Gentiles are just people, anyone who is not a Jew. So the Romans and the Greeks and everyone else. And so they stay away from those people because their land is important. In fact, if a Gentile, if you're a Jewish person and a Gentile eats from, you know, your plate, you throw that plate away. It's, it's unclean, spiritually unclean, religiously unclean. You don't, you don't hang out with people like that. And so they, they sort of understand, okay, here is our Messiah. He's going to probably gather us together. We're going to go out and get some weapons and arms, and he's going to lead an uprising, and we're going to throw all these horrible Gentile Romans who, are, who have conquered our land out, and we will be, again, a great nation like under David in the Old Testament. But instead, Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus never says, get any weapons. Jesus says, hey, let's go over to the Gentile side of the, side of the lake and visit. Now, how, how do we know this is a Gentile side of the lake? Is anyone smart enough? You've worked it out from the rest of the story. How do we know the other side of the lake is a Gentile? I mean, we know now geographically, but is there a hint? Do you get it somewhere? Yeah. Well, that's right. We know the name of the city, and so we know where it was. But, but is there, there's another hint, a cultural hint. You can just yell it out because pigs, that's right. There's a pig farm. There's 2,000 pigs. You don't get pigs on the Jewish side of the lake, okay? Jews are forbidden from eating pigs. Pigs are not kosher. I mean, they might hide one or two in the bathroom, but they're not going to, you know, you're not allowed to eat it. It's, it's totally forbidden. Read your Old Testament. So 
they go out on the other side of the lake. It's a Gentile territory. So Jesus was basically saying, okay, we're going to go over to the dark side, the sinful side. Let's get in the thing. Now, we're going to see, actually, Jesus does invites them into a whole range. Jesus' discipleship method through this story is to invite them into a whole range of very confronting situations. And the first one is, let's go over to the other side of the lake. There's a, almost, the second one is almost before it, and that is that he's basically saying to them, let's go out on the water. Now, this is another really interesting thing you've got to know about the Jewish people. They're not real big on the water. Vikings love the ocean. Jews, not so much. <laughs> yeah, there's not a lot of Jewish explorers in history. Have you ever noticed that? They're not so much going around, hey, wow, this is <laughs> New Jerusalem. Oh, no, no, it's New South Wales. The Welsh are more, but do you understand? Not so much on the sea. Then, in fact, the Jewish people understand the ocean, the uncertainty of the ocean and the waves to, to be a sign of chaos. In fact, they get this idea of there being the monster, the chaos monster, Leviathan, who lives in the ocean. So they actually understand the waves as being a profound symbol of chaos and disorder. Things are out of control. And they get that, again, from the Old Testament. Read the book of Genesis and you hear the story. And the language that's given to us, the beautiful allegorical language that's given to us in the Genesis story, before God brings order to creation, it talks about the Spirit hovering over the waters. The language is there of, you know, whatever's there before the world's created, the, the, the language of it is given in the language of, of waters, of a sea, and it's, uns and it's flowing. It's allegorical language, but it's the language they understand as being uncertainty and chaos. So the Jews never go out. They're not so much going out on the ocean. They're very much the land people, very, very, you know. So this, firstly, Jesus just saying to them, let's go out on a boat. They're sort of, you mean fishing just out here or you mean, no, to the other side of the lake. It's confronting. It's actually culturally confronting for them. But Jesus does it. It'll be okay. And then a storm blows up. <laughs> Well, this is just what we thought would happen. And Jesus, this now gives a, a profound insight into how powerful and unique he is. He stands up there and he is, he's able to do something that no one has done since the creation of the world in Genesis. He commands the wind and the waves. He puts order back in. And so you can see, he's got wow, no one's done that since Yahweh in Genesis. You know what I mean? This guy, this is something else. So there's even this beautiful underlying thing there already about Jesus' authority. He has God's authority. So they go over to the other side. And, and, and really, this is where the story, you know, gets a, a little bit strange. Because already we, we have this... Um, he seems to park the boat, not just on Gentile territory, but in a cemetery. Do you notice that? It says, as soon as the scripture, as soon as they pulled up the boat, uh, a man ran to them out of the tombs. Now, where we think this actually happened, it's kind of like an inlet with the caves sort of in the cliff face, which are the sort of the tombs and so forth. So you've actually got this man sort of running around, you know, this sort of hillside and coming out of the tomb. So Jesus basically has taken them to the other side of the lake. And, and, and pulled up the boat in a cemetery. Jesus is turning out to be a wonderful cruise conductor. Now, this is not nice for us. 
none of us like to go on a cruise to a cemetery. I, I mean, I, I don't like the idea of going on a cruise at all, to be perfectly honest. But if you're into cruises, that's fine. Um, there's, they're not always dead people, but people that are just a few years off dead people on cruises, but that's okay. No, but when you get there and the other side, you don't get off and go, well, here we are, guys. This is where you'll maybe be buried in a few years if you keep sitting out in the sun on this cruise. But no, you, you don't go to a cemetery. It's a weird, cemeteries are not places, but particularly for the Jewish people. Death has a resonance with them that, that is religiously and culturally unclean. You don't hang around death, you don't touch dead bodies. Now, we get this in a couple of places. We, we, we know this. We know this culturally from a whole range of, of places, but you actually get a hint of this story in the story of the Good Samaritan. You know the story of the Good Samaritan? Jesus tells this story, and then there's a man who is beaten and lays on the side of the road. And, and uh, you know, a, a priest comes along, remember this? And Jesus says he walks around the other side of the road and keeps going. doesn't go near him. And then a teacher of the law comes and does the exact same thing. And then finally a Samaritan comes and, and takes care of him. And that's the amazing thing, because the Samaritans are half Gentile. But we look at those, it's not just that the priest is this naughty priest, or a, just a person who doesn't, you know, like people or want to help people. It's actually the fact if the priest is walking down the road and he's going to the temple that day, right? And he's walking along and he goes over to a body and it's dead and he touches the dead body. He's not allowed in the temple that day. He's now ceremonially unclean. Again, read your Old Testament. So you see these nuances, you don't quite get them, but you learn about them and it opens up the story and you go, oh, wow. So he was actually following like Old Testament law by staying away from a dead body. And this is how Jesus is radically changing that law. So you've got to understand that the deathness is, is big for the Jews. And, and especially Jesus, when Jesus was crucified, remember, you couldn't leave the body crucified on the Sabbath. So they had to quickly take it down, wrap it up and put it away and so forth before the Sabbath, because the body being out, dead body out in the open on the Sabbath is, is not, not done. So there's all these things. So Jesus, this, these people, you got to understand the disciples, they've grown up as young Jewish boys. They know this stuff deeply. And Jesus is just kind of pushing against them. Hey, let's go over onto the water. Let's go to the Gentile territory. Let's pull up in a cemetery. This is starting to become a very unusual, unexpected and confronting little mission trip that Jesus has his disciples on. And, and then a naked guy runs up to them. <laughs> Which is, again, you know you're having a good day when a naked guy runs up to you in the street. Now, the, the only thing I would say about, about this, I mean, the nakedness for us, this is unusual. If, if, if Charlie runs up to me in the street and he's naked, you know, we've met each other and we're getting on just fine, but I don't know you and you don't know me. <laughs> the only thing worse than a naked guy running up to you in the street is a naked guy who knows your name. <laughs> you know? This guy runs up and he says, Jesus! <laughs> you imagine the disciples going, uh-oh, here comes a naked guy. This is kind of weird. And then he goes, to, and he's like, you know this guy? <laughs> you guys know each other? Whoa, this is really a little bit strange. You know what I mean? It takes it to a whole level of uncomfortableness. 
But the nakedness itself, the, the nudity itself, is actually quite confronting for them. Because the, the nakedness for the Jews, I mean, for us, it's uncomfortable, it's inappropriate, it's impolite, it's all those sorts of things. Community standards just sort of say that. But for the Jewish people, there is another layer of religiousness as well. For them, religiously and culturally, they understand to, to, be, to, be, to put clothes on, to be robed, is to be bestowed with honour. But to disrobe, particularly in public, is to, is to have shame brought upon you. And again, there's two places we see this. One, one is in the Old Testament where we have King David who dances naked down the street. He's the king. And yet he goes out during, you know, the Christmas pageant and he dances naked down the middle of the road. And, and his queen looks out from her window and she says, who is this king who brings shame upon himself? And he says, that's right, that's right. He says, because the people have been worshipping him because he's such a mighty king and a mighty warrior. And they've been worshipping him and they've been saying how wonderful he is and forgetting God. And David says, this is not good. They should be worshipping God, not worshipping me. So he goes out and he shames himself in front of everyone. So they're like, maybe he's not as the king we thought he was. Did you see it? He's bringing shame upon himself specifically. And the, way, the quickest way to do that is to take your clothes off in the Jewish society, right? And the other place we see this, and this is very important, the other place we see that is, um, is with Jesus himself. Because Jesus' death and resurrection is the most, if you like, shamed moment in history. This is the moment where Christ takes upon the sin, the guilt, and the shame of all humanity. And, and he's actually crucified naked. It's this moment, you remember, remember when he's being beaten just prior to the crucifixion and they mock him. How do they mock him? They, they put a robe on him. You know, the purple robe and they put a crown of thorns upon him and they beat him and they mock him, pretend to worship him, pretending to honour him. But then when they rip it off, he's, he's crucified naked. There's God. There's your crucified God. Wow, taking the shame upon himself. We, we also see it, by the way, in, in the story of the prodigal son. Remember the prodigal son? He goes out and he sins and wastes all the money of the father and everything. And he comes home and, and how does the father show he's accepted again? Puts a robe around him and puts a ring on his finger. You have the honor of the family again. So this robing and this disrobing thing for them is, is very important. And so here we have Jesus, they're confronted by a naked man, the very embodiment, epitome of, of shame. They couldn't imagine running into anyone worse. And he, and he knows Jesus. <laughs> he recognizes Jesus. And he cuts himself. You see that? It says he cuts himself with stones. Now, this is, this is something that continues into our culture. You'd be aware that the cutting is a sign that everything is not all right under the surface. 
It's a, it's a phenomenon that exists where people deal with profound emotional and internal pain, psychologically trying to cope by inflicting external pain on their bodies. It's a sign of some very complex psychological stuff that needs help, needs some wholeness. But even in this particular culture, this this resonates for them religiously as well. Because they're very flesh-affirming people, the the Jewish people. The Jewish faith is, is, it's not actually one of those faiths where, you know what I mean, where people, this sort of understanding you beat yourself and you cut yourself into submission to show your honour from God. That's that's not there in in the Jewish faith at all, in the Christian faith really, it's not there. They are very, very much about all the language, it's about ceremonial washing and being pure before God and before the presence. That's what the ceremonies of the Old Testament sort of affirm. Um, there's never anything. In fact, some of the language in, in the prophecies, when they prophesy about Jesus coming as a Messiah, one of the ways they describe Him is there being no blemish upon Him. And that's their way of sort of talking in their, the language about the, Him being, you know, whole. And that's why also it's so incredibly profound that Jesus is crucified and then bears the scars, even in resurrection. It has all this incredible power that Jesus dares to take that on. But here is this man, this broken, troubled man, so troubled, naked, in, a, in, a, in Gentile territory, in a cemetery, uh, cutting himself and having such a rage within him that he can pull chains apart. He's described as being alone. No one wanting to hang out with him. No one wanting to be with him. He's, he's on his own. Very unusual, again, for the Jewish people, who are a communal people. You hang out with your tribe. You hang out with your family. In fact, you live with your extended family. And yet this man dwells alone, runs around, unwanted, and then he's described as having an unclean spirit, d- d- demons within him, demons raging within him so strong that when they come out, it says 2,000 pigs. It says, we are legion, a legion of soldiers, there's 2,000 soldiers, and they go into 2,000 pigs, the story tells us. Just what's raging inside this man? Can you see that this guy is the very epitome, the very antithesis of what they would understand to be a good guy? a holy guy, a just person, a great friend, the kind of person you want to learn from, a wonderful mentor, a great protege, a shining light in the youth ministry. Why has Jesus brought him into an encounter with this guy? Why are they there? Jesus has his disciples and he's showing them the kind of God he is and he decides to take them to a place that actually challenges every inch of their religious and ceremonial, and cultural instincts. Jesus is walking them into the very opposite kind of situation that they would have expected the Jewish Messiah to have taken them. Jesus is disturbing them. They're shocked. They'd be disoriented. Maybe you know something of that feeling. Maybe you've been on a mission trip to a third world country and seen the poverty. Maybe you've been to a part of town or into an experience and you say, this can't be the will of God. This is so messed up. I am so overwhelmed and shocked and shaken at this time. This is almost traumatic for me. 
There's a very old hymn. You won't know it. I barely know it, but I, I heard it once, and it says this. It goes, God bless us and disturb us. As we celebrate this feast, when Christ, who was the highest, came to earth to be the least, lest we confine to Satan's power those for whom joy has ceased. We're real good at the God bless us bit, but God bless us and disturb us. Following Jesus, it seems, can actually mean ending up in some rather disturbing places. Following Jesus can lead you into some shockingly disturbing places. But what that also means is that if you find yourself in a disturbing place, and maybe even tonight you find yourself in a difficult place, a dark place, a shadowy place, an uncertain place, a scary place, a life circumstance that you would not have chosen, you may actually be right where Jesus has led you. If we're going to understand something about being a disciple, something about following Jesus, then we've got to get this point. In fact, we've got to get this right to the core of our bones. That it's not always going to be a place of prosperity and affirmation. Jesus is not always going to come and say, yeah, you're just great as you are. Jesus may lead you to some disturbing places. Why has he taken his disciples? I mean, think about what he does at that point. He restores the man. That's wonderful. He casts the demon out and makes him whole. Wonderful. And then he says, well, let's get back in the boat. <laughs> Our work here is done. And they get back, and, and the disciples must be like, what was the point of this? Why have we come all the way over here for this one guy? And we're getting back in the boat. We're on a schedule here, you know, three years. What was the point of this entire exercise? Well, the point of the entire exercise may be for this demoniac man. God's love may extend that far for this particular person. But I actually think the primary purpose was not primarily about this person. It's probably about the disciples, Jesus taking them on an experience to demonstrate to him the kind of Messiah he is and what it means to follow him. It means leaving home. It means going through the storms and trusting the authority of God. It means going into a location geographically that may be not the happiest place on earth. And it may be being confronted with someone who you may not rather hang out with. It may mean being challenged culturally by everything that is the antithesis of what you would prefer. Jesus may lead you to that place. He led the disciples to that place. And aren't you glad he did? I mean, a few years later, Jesus has ascended to heaven and the disciples are out and they're on mission. And indeed, they go across the lake just like Jesus, to different parts of the world, and they go and take the gospel to different places, and guess what? Just about all of them are martyred for the gospel at the end of their ministry. At that moment, do you think they wish they were kind of, you know, back home? Watching Netflix in Jerusalem, just comfortable again. 
But no, here they are. Peter's crucified upside down for the gospel. As he's hanging there, it's like, oh, this may not have been... Oh, no, hang on a second. Oh, yeah, no, this is what it does mean to follow Jesus. Paul's in chains. Can't leave his house and preaches the gospel in Rome for years after. It's like, really? Can't leave Matt? This is, doesn't feel like... I'm not really in my sweet spot ministry-wise at the moment. This is... You know what I mean? Like, this is a... My apartment doesn't get a good afternoon light. You know, can I, can't reach my vinyl. It's, you know, it's like. Stephen Hudley gets off the blocks and he's stoned to death. Others have their heads chopped. It's, it's incredible. They're martyrs. And in fact, we forget about that. People are still being martyred around the world for the gospel now. In fact, horrifically so in some parts of the world. But this is the story. Is Jesus always going to lead you to the worst possible situation? Absolutely not. Is Jesus going to bring restoration and wholeness and confidence and healing into the very deepest parts of your soul? Absolutely, he will. Absolutely, he will. He tends and he has authority over the storms within you as well as the storms around about you. But friends, what does it mean? It means that you're not so tied to home and to happiness and to a quiet suburban life that you're not willing to to undermine it all and go here and go there and talk to this person. The other side of the river, the other side of the sea, the other side of the lake, for you, maybe just the other side of your road or the other side of your workplace or wherever it is, but it's wherever you'd really rather not go. And you can be damn sure that no one else at work is going over there to talk to that person. No one wants to do, and yet you go. Why do you go? Why do you go? Well, at the very least, you go because knowing That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. That if you're in a place that is culturally and instinctively dangerous and disorienting and disturbing, you may be in the very mission field, the very mission moment that Jesus has called you to. What's the other side of the lake for you right now? What is it? Now, if I stop there, we, we learn something about following Jesus and being a disciple of Jesus. If we stop there, we get that. We get the example of following Jesus. But there's one more point that I need to make, and it's a very important point. That while we may see ourselves as the radical disciples following Jesus to the other side of the lake, into the Gentile territory, into the dangerous territory, we see that. The only way you're ever going to muster the courage to do that, really, is if we swing the whole story around on its axis and realize, you know what? It's not you going to the other side of the lake. The gospel actually is this. It is Jesus who has come over to your side of the lake. It's not a crazy demoniac man over there. It's you. This is the crazy side of the lake. This is the crazy side of the lake. It is Jesus 
who saw equality with God as not something to be grasped, but made himself a slave, even a slave unto death, who came as a human being and incarnated as this guy to come and to die for you. You're on the other side of the lake. I'm on the other side of the lake. The gospel is not that you can be a radical disciple and go to the other side of the lake. That'll happen. That'll flow out. It'll only ever be some giant, wonderful trip for you, though, unless it's a sense of gratitude and thankfulness of recognizing, wow, he came for me. He came for me. He came across the lake for me. Friends, that's the gospel. What it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ is to say, oh, wow, you went, really? You did for me. You came across the storms for me. You died. You were the one who was cut for me. You, you were the, the one. You, you got naked for me. You went into a tomb for me. He became sin for me. See, friends, the miracle of the gospel is not that we can be people who go to a demoniac man who self-cuts in a tomb somewhere. The miracle of the gospel is that Jesus has become the naked man who was cut for us. He became that man for you. He comes to you. And if you have the storms inside of you, you feel like you've got 2,000 demons inside you, you feel like it's all happening. I want to say Jesus has come for you. This is what he does. He goes to the other side. He comes to your side. For years, you know what, I lived times of my life where I felt like the crowd was over that side of the road and I was over here on this side of the road by myself. That's how I generally saw life. I was the exception. I was always on my own. I just didn't fit. And then I had a vision of Jesus who walks over to the other side of the road for me. He comes and hangs with me. That's what he does. That's what he does. Friends, this tomorrow morning and Throughout the workshops and tomorrow night, we're going to talk a lot about what it means to be a follower of Jesus and what it means to live that truly and authentically and joyously in life today. That's interesting and wonderful stuff to talk about because it's a life like no other. It frees you to live a life that is really radical, but that is easily radical. But only any of it is possible if it's saying yes to the Jesus who has already said yes to you who has come to you, who has been the radical one for you on the other side of the lake. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, there is no other name. There's no other name because no one else is coming for us. No one else has come for us. 
No philosophy, no other God, no other historical figure, no other name. You have come for us, and you are coming for us again. A relentless and a marvelous and a scarred Savior who has come for us. Lord, we live in a broken world. I can't bear to turn on the news and see another attack. I can't bear to see it happening in Syria. I can't bear to see 11 million refugees. I am over it. I am over the things that I sense within myself. I am over my pride and my sin. Lord Jesus, you are just all over it. There is no other name by which we may be saved. There is no other name by which this world can be saved. And loving Lord Jesus to every last person here tonight, I thank you, Lord, for your love and for your ministry with us and to us on the other side of the lake. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.